I looked around. The building he pointed to was riddled with bullet holes. The QRF Humvee had put over 150 rounds from a 50 caliber heavy machine gun into it and many more smaller caliber rounds from their rifles and light machines. Now, the Abrams tank had its huge main gun trained on the building, preparing to reduce it to rubble and kill everyone inside. And if that still didn't do, still didn't do the job, bombs from the sky would be next. But something didn't add up. We were extremely close to where one of our SEAL sniper teams was supposed to be. That sniper team had abandoned their location they were originally planned to use and were in the process of relocating to a new building when all the shooting started. In the mayhem, they hadn't reported their exact location, but I knew it was supposed to be close to the point where I was standing, close to the building the Marine Gunny had just pointed to. What really didn't add up was that these Iraqi soldiers and their U.S. advisors shouldn't have arrived here for another couple of hours. No other friendly forces were to have entered this sector until we had properly deconflicted, determined the exact location of our SEAL sniper team, and passed that information to other friendly units in the operation. But for some reason... There were dozens of Iraqi troops and their U.S. Army and Marine combat advisors in the area. It made no sense to me. Hold what you got, Gunny. I'm going to go check it out, I said, motioning toward the building on which he had been working to coordinate the airstrike. He looked at me as if I was completely crazy. His Marines and a platoon full of Iraqi soldiers had been engaged in a vicious firefight with the enemy fighters inside that house and couldn't dislodge them. Whoever they were, they had put up one hell of a fight. In the Gunny's mind, for us to even approach that place was pretty much suicide. I nodded to my senior enlisted SEAL, who nodded back, and we moved across the street towards the enemy-infested house. Like most of the houses in Iraq, there was an eight-foot concrete wall around it. We approached the door to the compound, which was slightly open. With my M4 rifle at the ready, I kicked the door the rest of the way open, only to find I was staring at one of my SEAL platoon chiefs. He stared back at me with wide-eyed surprise. What happened? I asked him. Some mooj entered the compound. We shot one of them, and they attacked hardcore. They really brought it, he said. I remembered what the gunny had told me. One of the Iraqi soldiers had just been shot when he entered the compound. At that moment, it all became clear to me. In the chaos and confusion, somehow, a rogue element of Iraqi soldiers had stayed outside the boundary had strayed outside the boundaries to which they had been confined and attempted to enter the building occupied by our SEAL sniper team. In the early morning darkness, our SEAL sniper element had seen the silhouette of a man armed with an AK-47 creep into their compound. While there were not supposed to be any friendlies in the vicinity, there were many enemy fighters known to be in the area. With that in mind, our SEALs had engaged the man with an AK-47, thinking that they were under attack. Then, all hell broke loose. 
When gunfire erupted from the house, the Iraqi soldiers outside the compound returned fire and pulled back behind cover of the concrete walls across the street and the surrounding buildings. They called for reinforcements, and U.S. Marine and Army troops responded with a vicious barrage of gunfire into the house they assumed was occupied by enemy fighters. Meanwhile, inside the house, our SEALs were pinned down and unable to clearly identify that it was friendlies shooting at them. All they could do was return fire as best they could and keep up the fight to prevent being overrun by what they thought was enemy fighters. The U.S. Marine Anglico team had come very close to directing airstrikes on the house our SEALs were holed up in. When the 50 caliber machine gun opened up on their position, our SEAL sniper element inside the building, thinking they were under enemy attack, called in the heavy QRF Abrams tank for support. That's when I arrived on the scene. Inside the compound, the SEAL chief stared back at me, somewhat confused. He no doubt wondered how I had just walked through a hellacious enemy attack to reach his building. It was a blue on blue, I said to him. Blue on blue, friendly fire, fratricide. The worst thing that could happen. To be killed or wounded by the enemy in battle was bad enough. But to be accidentally killed or wounded by friendly fire? Because someone screwed up? Was the most horrible fate. It was also a reality. I had heard the story of X-Ray Platoon from SEAL Team 1 in Vietnam. The squads split up on a night patrol in the jungle. They lost their bearings. And when they bumped into each other again in the darkness, they mistook each other for the enemy, and they opened up with gunfire. A ferocious firefight ensued, leaving one of their own dead and several wounded. That was the last X-ray platoon in the SEAL teams. And now it had just happened to me, to us, to my SEAL task unit. Hello and welcome to the Regular Man Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Cruz, and what you just heard was part of the beginning chapter of the book, Extreme Ownership, written by Navy SEALs Jocko Willink and Leif Babin. Jocko in particular has become quite popular with some of the guys from the military and law enforcement community, and he has some amazing deployment stories and tactical stories. And um, I'm going to read more of this opening story because it highlights an important biblical truth about men, about fathers, husbands, businessmen, church leaders, anybody in authority. Really, anyone who has any form of leadership whatsoever. Uh, Because today, I'm going to talk to you about the importance of masculine leadership. And specifically, the ownership that leaders ought to have in part one, ownership. Back to the book. I felt sick. One of my men was wounded. An Iraqi soldier was dead and others were wounded. We did it to ourselves, and it happened under my command. When we completed the last mission of the day, I went to the Battalion Tactical Operations Center, where I had my field computer set up to receive emails from higher headquarters. I dreaded opening and answering the inevitable email inquiries 
about what had just transpired. I wish I had died on that battlefield. I felt I deserved it. My email box was full. Word has rapidly spread that we had a blue on blue. I opened up an email from my commanding officer that went straight to the point. It read, shut down, conduct no more operations. Investigating officer, command master chief, and I are in route. In typical fashion for a Navy mishap, the CO appointed an investigating officer determined the facts of what had happened and who was responsible. Another email from one of my old bosses stationed in another city in Iraq, but privy to what was happening in Ramadi, said simply, Heard you had a blue on blue. What the hell? All the good things that I had done the solid reputation I'd worked for to establish in my career as a SEAL were now meaningless. Despite the many successful combat operations I had, I was now the commander of a unit who had committed the, the SEAL mortal sin. A day passed and I waited for the arrival of the investigating officer, our CO and the command master chief, the senior enlisted SEAL at the command. In the meantime, they directed me to prepare a brief detailing what had happened. I knew what this meant. They were looking for someone to blame. And most likely someone to relieve. The military euphemism for someone to fire. <clears throat> this was a crucial part in Jocko's deployment. There were some major screw-ups. I mean, someone was dead. Another guy was seriously permanently injured to his face. And all this happened under his watch. Every single man who has ever had any sort of authority has or will be in a situation like this. I mean, hopefully not somebody who has a permanent disfigurement or someone who's lost his life, but something, someone screwed up under his watch. Fathers will have children who screw up. Husbands have wives who screw up. Employers and supervisors will have employees and subordinates who screw up. Pastors, elders, deacons will have church members and leaders who screw up. And just like this scenario, we'll need to debrief. We'll have to find out what went wrong, who's to blame. Then we'll need to hold somebody accountable and make necessary corrections. And this is... This is all part of leadership. This is what it means to be a leader. And as a man, you have authority. You're a leader. Husbands, you're the head of your wife and your children. You have the authority and the burden of leadership. So what will you do in situations like this when someone screws up under your command? What will you do when and if this happens on your watch? Back to the book. Frustrated, angry, and disappointed that this happened, I began gathering information. As we debriefed, it was obvious that there were some serious mistakes made by many individuals, both during the planning phase and on the battle during execution. Plans were altered, but notifications weren't sent. 
The communication plan was ambiguous and confusing about specific timing and radio procedures contributed to critical failures. The Iraqi army had adjusted their plans, but hadn't told us. Timelines were pushed without clarification. Locations of friendly forces were not reported. And the list went on and on and on. Within Task Unit Bruiser, my own SEAL troop, similar mistakes had been made. The specific location of the sniper team in question had not been passed to other units. Positive identification of the assumed enemy combatant, who turned out to be an Iraqi soldier, had been insufficient. A thorough SITREP situational report had not been passed to me after the initial engagement took place. The list of mistakes was substantial. As directed, I put together a brief, a Microsoft PowerPoint presentation with timelines and depictions of movements of friendly units on a map of the area. Then, I assembled the lists of everything that everyone had done wrong. It was a thorough explanation of what had happened. It outlined the critical failures that had turned the mission into a nightmare and cost the life of one Iraqi soldier, wounded several more, and but for a true miracle, could have cost several of our SEALs their lives. But something was missing. There was a problem, some piece that I hadn't identified, and it made me feel like the truth just wasn't coming out. Who was to blame? I reviewed my brief again and again, trying to figure out the missing piece, the single point of failure that had led to the incident. But there were so many factors, I just couldn't figure it out. Finally, the CO, the CMC, and the investigating officer arrived at our base. They were going to drop gear, grab some food at the chow hall, and then we would bring everyone together to debrief the incident. I looked through all my notes again, trying to place the blame. <laughs> then it hit me. Despite all of the failures of individuals, units, and leaders, and despite the myriad mistakes that had been made, there was only one person to blame for everything that had gone wrong on this operation. Me. I hadn't been our sniper I hadn't been with our sniper team when they engaged the Iraqi soldier. I hadn't been controlling the rogue element of Iraqis that entered the compound, but that didn't matter. As the SEAL task unit commander, the senior leader on the ground in charge of the mission, I was responsible for everything in task unit bruiser. I had to take complete ownership of what went wrong. That is what a leader does, even if it means getting fired. If anyone was to be blamed and fired for what happened, let it be me. A few moments later, I walked into the platoon space where everyone has gathered to, brief, to debrief, and the silence was deafening. The CO sat in the front row, the CMC stood ominously in the back, 
the seal that had a wounded, the seal that had been wounded, fragged in the face with a fifty caliber round, was there and his face bandaged up. Here at the Regular Man Podcast, I want every guest and every listener to feel like you're genuinely part of this podcast, because you are. It means a lot to me that you'll spend your time listening to this podcast, and I want to do something special for you. I'm not going to make certain episodes behind a paywall and charge you for listening to the podcast or for a transcript or a chat or an email or something shady like that. That's stupid. It's selfish, and I'm not going to take advantage of you. You'll always get the Regular Man Podcast for free. Always. But I do want to do something special for those of you who do want to be a bigger part of the podcast. You'll be able to buy a brick on the wall behind me. If you follow and subscribe on X or Patreon for $5 a month, you can send a picture of your signature to theregularmanpodcast at gmail.com and I'll put your signature on one of these bricks of the regular man wall. You'll see a video of your signature being transferred onto your own brick and you'll be on the credits of every episode for the entire time that you're subscribed all for just five dollars a month just so i can keep this thing going and even if you don't subscribe man i want to say thank you thank you for watching and thank you for listening thank you for sharing and reviewing on apple itunes and spotify and x and youtube and rumble and everywhere else because you really are part of this podcast it's the whole reason that i do this man it's for you it's it's for the regular guy so thank you for listening thank you for sharing God bless. I stood before the group. Whose fault was this? I asked the room full of teammates. After a few moments of silence, the SEAL who mistakenly engaged the Iraqi soldier spoke up. It's my fault. I should have positively identified my target. No, I responded. It wasn't your fault. Whose fault was this? I asked the group. It was my fault, said the radio man from the sniper element. I should have passed our position sooner. Wrong, I responded. It wasn't your fault. Whose fault was it? I asked again. It was my fault, said another SEAL who was a combat advisor with the Iraqi army clearance team. I should have controlled the Iraqis and made sure they stayed in their sector. Negative, I said. You are not to blame. More of my SEALs were ready to explain what they had done wrong and how it contributed to the failure. But I had heard enough. You know whose fault this is? You know who gets all of the blame for this? The entire group sat there in silence, including the CO, the CMC, and the investigating officer. No doubt they were wondering whom I would hold responsible. Finally, I took a deep breath and said, There's only one person to blame for this. Me. I'm the commander. I'm responsible for the entire operation. As the senior man, I am responsible for every action that takes place on the battlefield. 
There's no one to blame but me. And I'll tell you this right now. I will make sure that nothing like this ever happens again. It was a heavy burden to bear, but it was absolutely true. I was the leader, I was in charge, and I was responsible. Thus, I had to take ownership of everything that went wrong. Despite the tremendous blow to my reputation and my ego, it was the right thing to do. The only thing to do. I apologized to the wounded seal, explaining that it was my fault he was wounded and that we were all lucky he wasn't dead. We then proceeded to go through the entire operation piece by piece, identifying everything that happened and what we could do going forward to prevent this from ever happening again. Looking back, it's clear that despite what happened, the full ownership that I took of the situation actually increased the trust that my commanding officers and chief had in me. If I had tried to pass the blame on to others, I suspect that I would have been fired, and deservedly so. The SEALs and the troops, who didn't expect me to take the blame, respected the fact that I had, take full, that I had taken full responsibility of everything that had happened. They knew it was a dynamic situation caused by a multitude of factors, but I owned them all. As husbands and fathers, the buck stops with you, man. You're responsible for everything. Even when things happen that really aren't your fault, you're still responsible. If your wife charges $10,000 on the credit card and she can't pay it, who's responsible for the debt? You are. If your teenager crashes the car or steals from the store or breaks the window, who's responsible for their conduct? You are. So even when there's a dynamic situation or there are several factors in a complicated event, remember, you're, you're still the one in authority, the leader. And you're responsible, even if it's not your fault. Back to the book. When I returned home from deployment, I took over training detachment one which managed all training for West Coast SEAL platoons and task units in preparation for combat deployments. I set up scenarios where blue-on-blue -blue shootings were almost guaranteed to happen. When they did, we, the training cadre, explained how to avoid them. But more important, the commanders in training could learn what I learned about leadership. While some commanders took full responsibility of blue on blue, others blamed their subordinates for simulated fratricide incidents in training. These weaker commanders would get a solid explanation about the burden of command and the deep meaning of responsibility. The leader is truly and ultimately responsible for everything. On on any team, in any organization, all responsibility for success and failure rests with the leader. The leader must own everything in his or her world. There is no one else to blame. The leader must acknowledge mistakes and admit failures, take ownership of them, and develop a plan to win. When subordinates aren't doing what they should, leaders that exercise extreme ownership 
can't blame the subordinates. They must first look in the mirror at themselves. Total responsibility for failure is a difficult thing to accept. And taking ownership when things go wrong requires extraordinary humility and courage. But doing just that is absolutely necessary for learning, for growing as a leader, and improving a team's performance. Extreme ownership mandates that a leader sets aside ego, accepts responsibility for failures, attacks weakness, and consistently works to build a better and more effective team. Such a leader, however, does not take credit for his or her team's success, but bestows that honor on his subordinate leaders and team members. Um, so in conclusion, I, I want to, I wanted to read this because I've never seen an example about the importance of leadership and owning their responsibility that hit me as hard as this has. And I'll be honest, I've, I've failed miserably at this. The first time I read this, I was so convicted, man, I, I, ha I felt like I had to repent, you know, and I did, I had to get right and make it right. And so I made changes in my life and I took ownership of my responsibilities and I'm challenging you to do the same thing as Christian men. It's our privilege to lead our family. It's also an incredible responsibility. Everything that happens under your watch is your responsibility. Even if it's not your fault, it's your responsibility. You see, God didn't give you authority over your family so you could benefit from it. He gave you authority so that you could benefit them. So that you could lead them, teach them, protect them, and take extreme ownership of them. If you can relate to this stuff, man, check out Spotify, Apple, iTunes, rate and review the show, leave me a comment, and go to Twitter and follow and subscribe. That'll really help me out a lot. It'll help me to keep doing these and push them out to everybody. I also want to say something else. To everybody who's ever served, all the combat veterans, disabled veterans, police, fire, corrections, anybody, anywhere who has sacrificed for their community, for their country, for their family, for their church. Thank you. Till next time, be on alert, stand firm in your faith, act like men, and be strong. Thanks for listening.